Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we will look there in just a moment. As you're turning there, I'll add my welcomes. Good to see so many of you here this morning. Good to have such a great number of visitors with us. We um, are a pretty small congregation, but we live in a very beautiful area of the country, so we can always uh, count on uh, some visitors coming our way most every week, and we are very glad that you are here, glad that you have found us. We are um, simply a, a New Testament church trying to uh, do what the Lord has commanded us to do in his word, uh, no more and no less. So we meet here every week to do these things and to encourage one another as we have been shown uh, that we are to do from God's word. I want to start this morning by asking a few questions. First, let's ask this question. How many life-changing events can you remember? Truly life-changing events. Probably you can name them on one hand. Maybe something like turning 16. I remember that one very well. I'm a very independent-minded kind of person. And the, the idea of, of, being, of having a driver's license and being able to get in a car and drive and go where I wanted to go, that was, for me, that was pretty life-changing. Of course, my parents had something to say about where all I could go, but you get the point. Getting married, surely we remember that and how much of a change in our life that was. Or having your first child, how your life changed after that. It was no longer the same. You went from one way of life and, and probably overnight to another way of life. It's a life-changing event. How about this? How about when you were baptized? Do you remember that? I would guess most of us in this room remember that. Probably a lot about the events of that day or that evening when you were baptized. Is there a more important event in the life of a human being than that of being baptized? That of putting on Christ? We were this person, we went through the waters of baptism, and we were raised to be a different person. That's a life-changing event. But has your life really changed forever? We can look at that list and, and, and see that our life has changed forever since then. But when we look back on our baptism and think about what it was that we did, surrendering ourselves uh, to the Lord's will, repenting of our sins and, and being immersed in water, are we still that changed person that we were that day or that evening that we were baptized? I want us to look at that this morning and consider it from this, from this angle. What our Lord says here in John chapter 8 is he's speaking to this woman who has been caught in adultery. His last words of admonition to her, Encouragement, however you might look at it, to her are to, from now on, sin no more. So that's what we want to focus in on this morning. If you're there in John chapter 8, let's, let's refresh ourselves with the account that's going on here. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So here's our Lord, he's in the temple early in the morning, and he's, and he's sitting there and he's teaching, which is his uh, 
his want to do, his pattern. He was interested and, and, uh, and wanted and loved to be able to teach the people. That was his mission. Verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses... Uh, commanded us to stone such women, what then do you say? Now, this is typical of these people's behavior, these scribes, these Pharisees, this is the Jewish leadership. They typically try to catch Jesus in, in, or, or put him in a position where he has to make a decision, and the decision that he makes will convict him one way or the other, and then they'll have some kind of charge to hold against him. So this is typical behavior of these. Verse 6, and they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. Now, just as a, as a, I like to do this in my teaching, put yourself in the moment for just a second. This is a, a difficult situation, really, that the, the scribes and Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in. And it has the, the implications here are, are, are grave for what might happen to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He stoops down and just writes on the ground with his finger. I just love that image of men thinking it's very, very critical, and they've got Jesus in this, in this trap. He's very, seemingly very nonchalant about what's going on here, so much that his body language might show that. We never, lo never lose sight of the human side of things and the, and the, and the moment of things. Verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said, we all know this part, don't we? You who is without sin cast the first stone. That's how it's rendered. Some, some uh, translations, the New American Standard says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So they think they've got Jesus trapped. The, the punishment for a woman caught in adultery is to stone her. What say you, Jesus? Those are without sin. You, you be the first one to throw a stone at her. And I love what happens after that. It says, verse 8, And again he stooped down and wrote down on the ground. So here again, Jesus returning to that, that body language, that, that uh, position. And when they heard it, verse 9, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And when he was left alone and the woman where she was in her midst... So what happens? Instead of the, the one who was without sin picking up that first stone and stoning her, they just all, one by one, just left. Convicting themselves, didn't they? Verse 10, And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus didn't condemn her for the things that, that she had done. It wasn't his place at this particular time and moment and, and place in his ministry. But what does he tell her? He tells, tells her, from now on, sin no more. Now, isn't that a very simple yet uh, profound statement? and charge. Take it into your own life. How would you feel if 
the Lord were standing before you and said, go on now and don't sin anymore. So we want to look at some things about this and see if we can draw out uh, some practical applications on how we can put this in our own lives. How can we turn from sin and from now on don't sin anymore? So let's start with this first part of what our Lord says. He says, from now on. In other words, Jesus is saying, enough of the old life. Enough of the old life. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We have so much in Scripture that we can look at and, and understand the, 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 the thought behind this lesson in that... This is the old way of life. Now there's a new way of life. So let's start with this, the old way of life. 1 Peter 4, beginning verse 1, says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We get an inkling of it right there, don't we? No longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You see that change that has to take place there. Notice verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You see, what is Peter saying? Enough of the old life. You've spent enough time in that. You've spent enough time after in worldly pursuits. You've spent enough time in sin. That time is, is enough. Let's move past that. Beginning of verse 4. And in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in their same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel is for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. There it is again, the difference between living in the flesh and living for the will of God. You see, there's that change. There's that change. Enough of the old life. It's time to move on. Put that behind you. Move on to something more. Look over in Ephesians 4. Similar language here that Paul uses. Ephesians 4, beginning verse 17. It says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluding from the life of God, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. See, that's similar language to what Peter said, right? The, 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 the fleshly desires and pursuits. That's the way the Gentiles are. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, 
and that with you, uh, and that you, by renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see that change? Here's the old way. But you didn't learn Christ in that way. You learned Christ in godliness. And that's the life you need to live, live from now on. Put away that old man, that old woman. And live a new life in Christ. We're also taught about this idea of not only that, that we are uh, to put on this new life, but we're to embrace it. Look over in Romans chapter 6. And there is a distinction here about just merely putting on the new life. I've been baptized, now I, I must live a life that God wants me to live. But there's more to it than that. There's an embracing of this life that we have, the freedoms that we enjoy, the blessings that we enjoy. Paul writes about it in Romans 6, beginning of verse 1. What shall I say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, there's that, that demarcation line again. Dying in sin, how can you die to sin and still live in it? When you die to sin, that body is dead. And what Paul goes on to say here, verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Sometimes I think we overlook uh, the importance and, and uh, what it means in baptism. But that's a burial. That former person is dead and buried and what is it that walks in newness of life? It's the new creature. It's the new person that has come out of the burial. So when we talk about life-changing events, there's that moment that has changed our life. We've buried that old man of sin, and we walk in newness of life. So we can point to that and see exactly when that time was. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. Who he has died is freed from sin. See how that language, you died from sin. You died to sin. Now you walk in newness of life. Embrace the new life. It's full of blessing. The other part of what Jesus says, he says, from now on, sin no more. Now this is a little more difficult than what we just talked about. How is it that we are to go on and sin no more? Let's first talk about this. Let's talk about the seriousness of sin. Sometimes we can be a little flippant about sin. Sometimes we can joke about it a little bit. Sometimes we can get pretty close to crossing a line. God hates sin. We'll look at that here in just a moment. Understand this first. 
This is how serious sin is. It separates us, separates us from our God. There in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sin has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Brethren, that ought to scare you to death. That when you sin, when your sin goes unrepented, it is separating you from your God. That ought to be frightening for each and every one of us. Because living in a world without God, living a life without God, should be terrifying to us. God hates sin. And so should we. Flip over to Jude for just a moment. <clears throat> Jude encourages his readers to hate sin. There in verse 22, he says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. We know what that means. Snatching them out of the fire. The path that they're headed down, this road of sin, this road of, of, of straying from God's will, which leads them to hell, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. God hates sin, and so should we. Jude's admonition here is, is not, he takes it to the point where it's even the clothes that are on the body. Of course, he's being illustrative in this example, but you get the idea. We should hate sin so much that anything that even comes close to sin, even brushes up against sin, we ought to have a disdain for. God hates sin and so should we. So how is it that we sin no more? Well, brethren, we need to strive to eliminate sin in our own lives. Let me say that again. We need to strive to eliminate sin in our own lives. pretty difficult, isn't it? Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How do we go about doing that? In a moment, in a moment we're going to see, I keep giving away the rest of my lesson, but in a moment we're going to see uh, what scripture has to say about saying we have no sin. But let's understand this first. Let's recognize that, that there is a standard out there. That there is um, a measure by which we can uh, measure ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is speaking here, the beautiful language here, and he talks about what's left after all things is love. He talks about the, the prophecies, the speaking in tongues, these miraculous gifts. Those things are going to go away. Those are going to die out with the apostles and the, those who have been... Uh, so imbibed with the Holy Spirit and able to do these things by the laying on the apostles' hands. And those things served a purpose. That was to go out to confirm the gospel message that these were teaching, preaching. But there's going to come a time when those are going to die out. What's going to be left? What's going to be left is the complete revelation of God's will for mankind. And we have it. This is it. 
And speaking of this, down in verse thir- uh, 11 of chapter 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And the context here, of course, what he's talking about is that the incomplete, that of the gospel going out, the signs and wonders that were accompanying that, but what's going to be complete is the complete will of God, the complete written word of God. That's what's going to be complete. And so he's, in the context here, he's, he's showing that change, that there's a, there's a growing period of the gospel. That's the childhood, but eventually it's going to become mature and full-grown, and we're going to have the complete revealed word of God. And that's the standard that we need to realize, that there is a standard out there, and that is the, the will of God. Look in verse 12. For now we, are, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We need to recognize that the, the word of God is that standard. And it is mature. And that is the standard by which we will be held to. And so we need to hold to that standard. Look over in 2 Corinthians now, chapter 13. Yeah. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 and 6. It says, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. So we have that standard, and we have to hold ourselves to that standard. We have to make sure that we are, are grounded in our faith, and that our faith is in Christ Jesus, and that it is unwavering. That helps us in what we are talking about here when it comes to sin. To know that there's a standard out there. God has given it to us. So what then should be our aim? Jesus told this, this woman to, from now on, sin no more. And we've looked at a couple of lessons here, a couple of uh, passages here about putting away the old self, putting on the new self trying to stay away from sin, is that good enough? Brethren, our aim should be not to sin. That should be our aim. It should be our goal not to sin. Look over in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. The first sentence of that verse, what does it say? My little children, I am writing these things that you may not sin. There's the standard. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. What things is he writing? He's writing all these things about um, loving one another, being uh, sure of your faith and who, who Jesus Christ is, knowing that he came from the Father, knowing that he was prophesied about, 
knowing that he was the one in which salvation is fully complete, knowing that he is the key to salvation and the key to forgiveness of sin. That's why John's writing these things. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But look at the second part of verse 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what does that tell us? It tells John saying, I don't want you to sin. You need to try to get sin out of your life. But if you do sin, we have the wonderful blessing of Jesus Christ, our advocate, who makes those intercessions for us. So is it possible then not to sin? Well, John just said, not really. I'm writing that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I won't make too much of this, but notice the past tense. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In 1 John 1 and verse 10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. Sin there in both of those uh, verses is in the past tense. Like I said, I won't make too much of that, because going forward, we know that we're going to stumble. We know that we are going to transgress God's law. And we have provisions for that. But do you see the point I'm driving at here? All have sinned. If we say we have not sinned, that speaks to that old man. That it speaks to that old woman who is engaged in sin, who is engaged in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. That's the past tense. What do we have moving forward? Jesus says, from now on, sin no more. And I'll stick with what I, I said a minute ago. It should be our goal not to sin. Are we going to fall down? Are we going to make mistakes? We are. But we don't need to hide behind that. We don't need to make excuses. Oh, well, I'm, I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. I'm just a human. I'm going to make mistakes. God's going to cover, cover me for that. 1 John 1 there, verse 9. If, he, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guess what? We're a child of God. And we confess our sins to him, what's he going to do? He's going to forgive us of those sins. He is faithful and just to do just that. But brethren, shouldn't we be making it our aim in life not to have to do that? Shouldn't we put away that old man who's full of sin and walk in newness of life and do our best not to sin? As Paul spoke there in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, When I became a man, I put away childish things. This idea of growth, of maturity. We ought to take that to heart. And in putting away childish things, that includes sin. You know, you can look at it this way also. The immature, the child is that one who is engaged in the world and the, the sins of the world, worldliness. But then there's a maturing process. 
put away those childish things, including sin, and become that mature man. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Let sin be that, be included in those childish things that we put away. Let our mature self grow to a point where we're not ruled by sin. We're told to do that coming out of the waters of baptism. We need to make sure we live our life in such a way that we're always maturing and that sin is less and less in our lives. Have you washed away your sins? We, early on we started talking about baptism and that, that life-changing event where the old man of sin went down in the waters and came up out of that burial to walk in newness of life. Have you done that? Have you been buried in baptism? That's the only way in which we can put to death that old man of sin. And the only chance we have of maturing past that and moving into a life where we've put away those childish things and could live a life to God. I hope this has been encouraging to you. I hope that as, if you're not a child of God, that you will take seriously the idea of becoming a child of God. Being able to put away that old man of sin. To walk in newness of life. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to make that right. If as a child of God you have stumbled, and you're giving yourself over to childish ways, I would encourage you to make the necessary changes in your own life. To reach that level of maturity where we're looking back on sin as something in the past. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.